This week on Life and Faith. I had a friend from another country who, when he came to Australia, was amazed at just how much people are able to trust each other. We see people that are desperate to do the opposite. There was animosity, but there was great love as well. And I think it's been disastrous for our national health. The truth is it makes you a happier person. What are you seeking? What is your life for? Welcome to Life and Faith from the Centre of Public Christianity. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Natasha Moore. Well, today's episode ventures into some of the most contested territory in the culture wars, the question of religious freedom. What is it? Is it legit or is it just a cover for bigotry? Do we even know how to live in a functional, free, secular society these days? Here in Australia, where our national anthem cheerfully asserts that we are one and free, This question has kicked off again in recent weeks with another scandal involving sport and religion and sexuality. So Andrew Thorburn was appointed CEO of the AFL club Essendon and then compelled to resign 24 hours after that because his position as chair of a Melbourne church was understood to conflict with the values of Essendon Football Club. Natasha, as always when this topic comes up, fears are stirred up, I'd say, on all sides. So for people of faith, for members of the LGBT community, and there's a lot of layers to work through here. So today's episode, it's important to say, is not about the Essendon saga, which is really one more trigger for what are bigger ongoing issues we're having as a culture. Here, we really want to take a step back and consider some of the framework to all this and see if that can't help us get out of a rut on what are some really vexed issues. There are a lot of ways, of course, of coming at this topic, given how complex it is. I mean, one way would be to kind of tell stories of what it does look like when people in practice can live and work together well while disagreeing very deeply about quite fundamental things. And that's an episode I'd quite like to make, actually. (laughs) So, I mean, if you have a story like that, we would love for you to email and tell us about it. Uh, You can reach us at podcast at publicchristianity.org. Yeah, that practical workability, it really is an important part of this puzzle. But so is the social and legal framework for things like that to happen. So in today's episode of Life and Faith, we call on Mike Bird, who is a biblical scholar and theologian at Ridley College in Melbourne, and also Nicholas Aroni, who is a law professor at the University of Queensland. We should say that neither of these conversations is in response to any particular blow-up. They both took place before the Essendon saga, and in the case of Professor Aroni, quite a while before. Um, both of these guys say things that you might not expect a theologian and a legal scholar, respectively, to say on this topic, but we kind of feel like something unexpected might be just what is needed on this, given kind of the impasse that we're at. Mm, absolutely. So first up then, Natasha spoke with Mike Bird about his book, Religious Freedom in a Secular Age, a Christian case for liberty, equality, and secular government. Now, Mike, I don't want to like offend you right off the bat here, but for a lot of us, religious freedom is a topic that's hard to get excited about. Like, It's not a very sexy topic. It's a bit of a stodgy one. Can you like sell it to us? Why is it an important conversation to have? Why should we be enthusiastic about religious freedom, whether we're religious or not? 
I think for two reasons. Number one, religious freedom interlocks with other freedoms. So if you have a very minimalist view of religious freedom, you're going to have a minimalist view of freedom of association. You're going to have a minimalist view of freedom of conscience. And also religious freedom is necessary for a multicultural country. If you're going to be a country filled with people from all parts of the world and you're going to have you know, people who are Christian, Catholic, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, and Hindu and uh, Muslim are the two fastest religions in Australia. Uh, if you're going to be a successful multicultural country, a land of all faiths and none, you need robust protections for religious freedom and laws that mean you cannot discriminate against people on the basis of their religion. If you want to avoid xenophobia, uh, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, or you know, any sort of religious-based prejudice, then you need good laws about religious freedom and freedom from discrimination based on religion. I think that's pretty sexy if you want to live in a pluralistic, tolerant democracy like we do. Your book about this topic makes a Christian case for secular government, which might sound odd to people. I mean, secularism itself is a very disputed and misunderstood term. I want to ask you, what do you wish that Christians knew about secularism? And what do you wish that secularists knew about secularism? What I wish uh, secularists knew about secularism is that secularism is not one thing. It's about 20 different things. There are different types of secularism. So French laïcité is very different from the secularism you get in the United Kingdom because in the United Kingdom, the crown appoints bishops in the Church of England, even though it's you know on paper it has a certain secularity to it, but you have an official state church appointed by the you know, elected government. Then you've got the secularism of somewhere like China, you know, which is a very vigorous and, and somewhat, uh, I would call, oppressive version of secularism. And then you've got the United States, where the secularism or the secularities are determined more by local circumstances than they are by a top-down federal government. So the secularity of somewhere like Dallas is very different to the secularity of Boston. And Australia is its own brand. Australia is very much a halfway house between the British and the American models. So that's what I want secularists to know. And the other thing I would say is Australia is not a secular country. We are a pluralistic country with a secular government. The government is and should be secular. The country is not secular. North Korea is a secular country because if the government finds you doing anything religious, they will either put you in prison or line you up against a wall and shoot you. Mm. That's not the kind of country we want to be. Uh, in terms uh, of I feel I... like maybe I should get you to define secular now before we go to the what, what do you okay, wish Okay, secularism is about the settlement you reach to define the spheres of influence between the political bodies and religious communities. So where are the areas of life that religion is allowed to matter and what are the areas of life where religion is not allowed to matter? That is what I think it is. Secularism does not mean anti-religious. Far from it. It wants to create the spaces where religion is free and it can thrive. Also, secularism does not mean that you cannot have a positive relationship between church and state. Church and state or religious communities, mosques, synagogues, temples can work together when they have some common aims or some common interests. For example, we can have chaplains in, in hospitals. Australian government may want to give funds to religious-based charities if they are doing a very, very good work. There's a long history of cooperation between church and state in the areas of education and philanthropy 
and all sorts of related areas. So, you know, that's what I think secularism, it's defining the areas where religion can and cannot matter. But you can still have a positive relationship between the two. It doesn't have to be anti-religious. Okay. So, I mean, secularism is a good thing. This is what Christians need to know. Secularism means we're not going to live in a theocracy. We're not going to replace the governor general or a president with a ayatollah, a chief rabbi, a pope, or a Dalai Lama. We're not going to have a religious cleric as the head of the state, and we're not going to be a de facto religious state. The state must consider itself both neutral in religion and incompetent to adjudicate on religious affairs, okay? And I think, you know, theocracy is a bad idea because it leads to a very superficial level of religious adherence, and people just pretend to be religious because they want to rise up in the political stakes, But here's the other side to secularism. Secularism is what tells the government they have no right to meddle in religious affairs. Secularism means the government cannot tell you how to do your religion. So secularism on both counts there, I think, is a good thing. We don't want to live in a theocracy, nor do we want what is called Erastianism, where the government attempts to regulate your religion by telling you um, who you should ordain, how you should pray, or how you shouldn't pray, uh, whether your sermons are acceptable or not. So that's what I think when we're talking about secularism. It is a good thing to protect you from expansive government interference. I wanted to know from Mike, what does he think is a way forward on what's become a vexed and even toxic issue for many Australians? Well, I think we need two things. One, I do think we need an anti-religious discrimination bill. Australia does not have government interference in religion generally, but we do have high levels of social hostility towards religious communities. And you can see that particularly in rates of Islamophobia, uh, certain moments of anti-Semitism. So stuff like that. I mean, we do need an anti-religious discrimination bill. I do think we need a positive statement of religious freedom that is based on um, Article 18 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So I think we need something that reflects international law. The problem is anyone who's going to pass those laws in Australia is going to have to navigate the very difficult and delicate issue of how do you balance religious freedoms and LGBT rights, because sadly that is the epicentre in the conflict. That is the presenting issue which is forcing us to deal with this, you know, the whole thing about religion, law and inclusiveness and tolerance. And you're going to have to face the question, do faith-based schools have the right to hire and fire people based on their adherence to religious tenets? Or should schools be told you can only hire someone on a faith-based role if you can prove incontrovertibly that that role is faith-based? Now, that's going to become problematic because you could go on some definitions, and this has already been tested in Queensland, and say that only the school chaplain, that's the only role in the school that needs to have a religious qualification. And you cannot require the principal or the janitor to be an adherent of your religion because there's nothing Christian about being a janitor. There's nothing inherently Muslim about being a principal. It's an administrative job. So we're going to have those debates. And at the federal level, the ALP, I think, is trying to strike a good balance of promoting a inclusive society, not allowing religion to be weaponized against sexual minorities, but recognizing that religious institutions should be allowed to preserve their religious ethos and identity. This question of employment is one of the frequent flashpoints for the whole debate. 
Mike's given a lot of thought to this particular issue. When it comes to the issue of Christian schools and who they can hire, I basically bring up two arguments. I bring up what I call the shoe on the other foot argument. Because political parties are, with some degree of flexibility, allowed to discriminate in their hiring policy. So if we were to go to the office of Peter Dutton or to Anthony Albanese or an Adam Band, you can make a pretty safe bet that everyone they hire within their sort of personal entourage is a member of their political party. And if Peter Dutton's political advisor was to say, you know what, on second thoughts, I really don't like our refugee policy or our climate policy. And on Twitter and my personal life, I'm going to be pretty much kind of like bagging you, boss, and everything you say and do. It'd be very difficult to be Peter Dutton's political advisor if you completely reject for moral and religious reasons his refugee policy and his climate change policy. But the same thing in the school. I mean, if you're a member of a, you know, you're part of the faculty of a school, principal, vice principal, senior lecturer, whatever, and you can no longer represent the values and the views of the school as they present themselves to the public, then you've got to say, well, you know, why is it Peter Dutton can sack um, his political advisor for changing tack, but not a school principal? I mean, Political parties, religious schools, should be allowed to maintain their ethos and their identity and hire people who agree with that. Let me give you this example. Imagine if I said to Adam Band, the only person in your office who has to be a member of the Greens is your policy advisor. The guy or the girl who answers phones, there's nothing greeny about answering phones. Even your media advisor just has to coordinate your schedule about your media interview, there's nothing greeny about being a media advisor. And therefore, you've got to be willing to hire someone like Lyle Shelton, former head of the um, Australian Christian Lobby, who's got lots of experience in media and politics. You've got to be willing to hire him as your media advisor because this will bring some diversity to your office because I notice you're very narrow. You've got a limited bandwidth you're operating. This will teach you some diversity. So there's nothing greeny about being a media advisor. So you've got to make the position open even to Lyle Shelton. I mean, that wouldn't work. It would end horribly. Same token. You, you, <laughs> for everybody. <laughs> for everybody, for Lyle and for Adam Band. Political parties, religious bodies have to be allowed to maintain their ideological integrity for what they believe and who they are. So that's the one problem, the shoe on the other foot. The second problem is if the government starts determining which vocations religion is allowed to matter in, then that's going to be the end of secularism. And this is the hypothetical scenario I, I present. Let's say a Muslim school has a, a position open to be the new principal, and there's two applicants. One is the current head of the mathematics department. is a Muslim man, very respected in the, in the Muslim community, attends the mosque regularly, known for both his piety and his excellence as a mathematics teacher. He's got some admin experience, he's got a Bachelor of Teaching in Maths, and he's one person who could be appointed as the next principal. But then there's another person who applies for the job who has like a, a master's in education, has a lot of experience being the vice principal of a local public school and identifies as Muslim. And then when he's interviewed with the committee, we say, do you identify as Muslim? He says, yes. They say, do you attend a mosque? He says, wouldn't know where to find one. Uh, they say, do you read the Quran? He goes, never owned one. Uh, what are your hobbies? Uh, I also run a website called Bacon Lovers of Victoria. <laughs> but he identifies as a Muslim. And on paper, you could say he's more qualified. And if he doesn't get the job, can that person then sue the Muslim school for not inviting him? And he could say, hey, I'm Muslim. There is absolutely no reason. The government has to say, yes, he is a Muslim. 
and they should have hired him. Who gets to determine who is a Muslim in good standing with the Muslim community? Or if something like you say, well, what's Christian about teaching French? I mean, French is French. There's nothing Christian about it. The government has to then determine which areas of life religion is allowed to matter in. And in order for secularism to work, the government has to regard itself as incompetent in matters of religion. And there have been places around Australia where this has been uh, tested and it hasn't gone well. There was a case in Queensland where St. Vincent de Paul insisted that the president of one of its chapters had to be Catholic. And the state government said being Catholic is not an essential part of being the president of a Catholic charity. So you can see how this is incredibly problematic. Government gets to tell religion, well, we don't think this is essential to your religion. I mean, I would have so much fun with this. I would love to then ask the judiciary, can you tell us whether transubstantiation is essential to being a Catholic? Can you tell me whether the reformed position for Presbyterians is infralapsarian or supralapsarian, or even, dare I say, sublapsarian? Which is the official <laughs> Presbyterian? You know, is papal infallibility an essential aspect of being Catholic? The minute the government starts adjudicating on this, it's the end of secularism, because for secularism to work, the government must regard itself as incompetent in matters of religion. You're listening to Life and Faith. This episode is treading the slippery ground of the religious freedom debate. And we're going to turn here from theologian Mike Bird talking about politics to law professor Nicholas Aroni talking about a few things you might not expect a law professor to focus on. Things like trust and love and what the point of religion is. Nicholas Aroni is professor of constitutional law at the University of Queensland. He's done a lot of work on legal pluralism and law and religion. And we're not just talking theory here. He's served on a bunch of committees and contributed to government and parliamentary inquiries on this stuff. He was part of an expert panel. It's known as the Ruddock Review, which in 2018 made a bunch of recommendations to the government about religious freedom in Australia. You've been involved in this in all sorts of different ways. Has this experience that you've had in serving on committees and trying to work towards something that's going to be practical and suit the community, has this left you feeling better or worse about the topic? My fundamental view is we should never lose perspective about what everyday life is like out there in the city walking around. And there are a lot of things about our everyday lives that are actually quite good. We live in a society that means that we walk down the street and we really seriously don't fear for our lives most of the time. But we should not also forget that things are not so bad as you might fear that they are. People are pretty trustworthy on the whole. Mm. Shopkeepers don't worry that their goods are going to be pilfered at a level that makes it uneconomic for them to display their wares. I, I had a friend from another country who, when he came to Australia, was amazed at just how much people are able to trust each other in this country. Mm. So I think we should never lose sight of that, even though, as a country, we are losing something of our ability to listen to each other or something of the ability to live and let live. Mm. I'm not sure if we're living and let live as much as we were two decades ago. It was just kind of ironic, isn't it? Because 
we saw ourselves developing into a much freer society than we once were. In in another sense, we might have become more restrictive because of our own sort of distrust of each other. Yeah, and trust is just a major factor here. Yeah. So the good thing is that we have quite a lot of trust at a certain level, yeah. but you can sense breaking down of trust. You know, there's a an old saying, even in leadership in organisations, you can only lead at the speed of trust. The more people trust you, the more they'll be happy to follow you. Mm. The less people trust you, the more they'll be placing constraints on you, resist you, or want rules to try and control your discretion. And I think that applies in organisations and it applies also in our polity as a whole and our attitude to our political leaders. Now, why is religious freedom an important thing, a good thing? I think that turns on what religion does in our society. And I think it does many things that are often not observed. For example, at the crisis times in all of our lives, when we're seriously sick, when we lose a loved one, when we become unemployed, if we face a crisis in our lives in a family breakdown or a divorce, Mm. it's often at those times that people and even organisations with religious intent are there to help you. And they're often there to help you not in a way that is structured or, and I don't mean this in a negative sense altogether, but bureaucratic in a way, Mm. like you're not part of a system. Your local priest or pastor, a local person who runs a religious organisation, is almost always going to be there personally just to listen to you and support you. And I think that's one of the fundamental values of religion in our society. I think there's others, but I think it's that crisis moment where it really shows and people know that it shows. And so the, the place of religious freedom in that, therefore, is it people being able to free, free to be fully who they are as that religious person with those religious commitments in order to do the sorts of things you're describing? Yes, because I think people who are religiously motivated by these things are doing it because they've been touched by love and forgiveness in their lives and it has an effect on them. I think it must be true. Be interested to know what studies say, that the more you're loved, probably the more loving you're going to be yourself. The more hurt you've been, the harder that's going to be. All of us experience hurts and I think we're all tempted to respond by hurting others. But when we encounter love, it makes a very big difference. And I think that religion is very much driven by that. And so if you don't recognize that and you don't allow room for that to blossom in your society in the small local ways, just down the street, then you're cutting off a source of support, a source of help, and even a a vision for the future. That would be another issue that here that I think is very relevant as well about hopelessness in our society. I think that uh, religion often contributes hope to people's lives as well. It's not always the perception, though, let's say, of Christianity in Australia. And I think this is a big part of this discussion. People are fearful that religious freedom is going to be protecting something that they're actually not sure has been good for society and are worried that, in fact, it hasn't and won't be. Yeah. And I can understand that to this extent, that people may have experienced in their past things done by people who profess to be religious that haven't really been very consistent with their religious beliefs or their religious profession. 
I mean, that's a deep problem that we all face, whether you're religious or not, yeah. about whether you live in integrity. Because I think we are all prone to say one thing and act in a different way when we're under pressure or when no one's watching mm. or when we think we can get away with it or just simply because we are driven by other desires. But this serves only to just reinforce, I think, the importance of what the heart of religion is. And it's about self-examination about these things. And certainly the greatest critics of hypocrisy, the person I think who made us all think about this is a fellow called Jesus Christ, mm. who's uh, seen as you know the origin of one of the major religions of the world. So to think that hypocrisy is a bad thing is actually a religious point of view in that sense. Nick, are there actually threats to religious freedom in Australia? And if so, what's the nature of that threat, do you think? To speak of a threat in this circumstance is to put a pretty strong spin on it. Mm. I think that what one has to recognise is that religious freedom is a global issue and there does seem to be very clear evidence that religious freedom is not just under threat. It doesn't exist yes. in some places. And that is a very real situation that we should never lose sight of. What that means then, though, is that we also should recognise that just because it's happening somewhere else doesn't mean it can't happen here either. So I think that people who speak of a threat to religious freedom, maybe it, there's a certain degree of hyperbole in it, but it's also born out of a consciousness that in other places and in other times, things can turn, and sadly, horrifyingly, they can turn pretty quickly. And... There's a sense in which I suppose many people, not just religious people, but people who care about freedom, would say with Thomas Jefferson that the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. And so I think that motivates people, not just in the religious freedom sphere, but in any of these spheres, to say, well, the fact that we are actually quite a free country is because we're actually a fairly vigilant country about this issue. And I think that that sorts of helps to explain why it pans out or that sort of language is used in this context. Yes, and so is it the case that religious freedom is one piece of a puzzle of the sort of society we have come to be and appreciate and, and want to protect and that you can't kind of have one without the other? I think so. I mean, it's well acknowledged that religious freedom is just one of a suite of freedoms that work together to create or support a society which is a sort of society that's quite a good society to live in. Those other freedoms are things like freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of assembly. Together with freedom of religion, they form a combination of freedoms that we've taken for granted for a long time in our country. And we've always been vigilant to watch when there have been incremental challenges to those freedoms. And so if you cast your mind over, say, freedom of speech, you can see that people are concerned when they notice that, say, journalists or the media are being constrained by government laws or policies that control their knowledge of information. And you could say in that industry, they say, look, freedom of the press is under threat. And they'll use the same sort of language. Yeah. Why do they do that? Because they want to be vigilant about protecting freedom of the press, even though actually if you read our newspapers today, you will see that there's quite a lot of freedom of the press in our country. But 
That's not to say that there aren't challenges occurring there. I would say the same thing can be said about freedom of association, freedom of assembly, Mm. freedom to protest. We are still pretty free to protest, but look at the vigilance with which we respond when, say, a government starts to propose some controls on the right to protest. We say freedom to protest is under threat. It's exactly the same when it comes to freedom of religion. You have a look at religious practice across our country. Broadly speaking, we are a very free country. You can adopt any religion of your choice in our country and practice it to your heart's content in many, many ways. But when laws are introduced that infringe on that freedom to some extent, people say freedom of religion is under threat. It seems to me that across the board, that's the way we treat it. It's about vigilance, about protecting freedoms. It's interesting that as a country like Australia becomes less and less religious, there's more and more people who say, I have no religion. Does this question then change a little bit? Because the religious people have to start to realise, oh, we're no longer sort of in control here. And those who've uh, shrugged it off might say, yeah, you guys just got to get used to the new landscape. Yeah. Australia is clearly a changing place. What fascinates me is the way in which change is occurring at different rates and in different ways in different parts of Australia. Mm. I did some research on diversity in our country across the federal system and how each state and different capital cities and regions differ in terms of the degree to which and the ways in which they are diverse. So it's undoubted that when you look at Australian Bureau of Statistics data that For the Australian population as a whole, the number of people who identify as not having a religion has clearly increased very rapidly over recent years. The numbers who would say they adhere to Christian faith has declined, and the numbers of people who adhere to other religions has marginally increased. But if you dig deeper and say on a state-by-state level, what is the story, you actually see quite interestingly different pictures. And I suspect that those different pictures account for differences in politics as it is worked out in the different states. And then if you dig further down to, say, an electorate by electorate basis, it explains a lot about individual electorates. And politics is not just about an overall average. As the old adage says, politics is always local. And so if you get into some of these local areas or even on a state-by-state level, it's not so clear that the secular or the non-religious is the growth pattern. In fact, it might be other religions that are the growth pattern. And I think that's something we've always got to bear in mind. What do you think is the right balance to be struck here and the best method of achieving something that works for people who might be religious but also non-religious. There's a clash of rights in some ways, isn't there, in this discussion? I think that we do best if we truly try to believe in a principled pluralism here. Hmm. And what that means is to recognise that we live in a culture and society where people have different faiths, including secular faiths and religious faiths, and they seek to express it by what they do by the communities and associations they form. And it's important that we maintain a principled pluralism where we recognise that it's quite possible that within some contexts, harms can be done to people and we should not turn a blind eye to those sorts of harms. But we also have to be very careful about how we understand what harm is and ask ourselves very deeply about what that means. And that's a tough question we can't avoid addressing. But it does seem to me that if we were to take a more pluralistic view, we would be inclined to do what, in fact, is done at a political level, 
We recognise that, for example, each political party is entitled to define its own existence and to say we're a political party that stands for these beliefs and these ideals and that we seek to promote them and advance them in our country in the political sphere. And it's understood that they are distinct and they each operate in a pluralistic way and they're each free to define their own standards and their own expectations, even of people who join their organisations and work for them and represent them. It seems to me that by analogy, the same really should apply to the other associations in our society, including religious ones, Mm. that there's a diversity of religions, a diversity of values going on here in each one. But within a principled framework, each should be free to live out those values that are fundamental to their beliefs. And you're someone who thinks that will in the end serve all people irrespective of belief, don't you? Yes, I mean, because people believe these things very strongly. And if you don't recognise that, you're clamping down on the ability to express who they are, but more so it's not going to be possible to live in a world where you're constantly trying to control what other people believe using heavy-handed devices. Yeah, that's heading in a direction most of us do not want to go, even if we don't see that initially, as, as that's what's happening. Let's um, get a bit more pointed here. I'm sure, and it's been the case, we've seen this expressed, that LGBT people fear that this discussion around religious freedom and discrimination is in fact something that could be used as a sort of a weapon against them. Now, this community, I think this has to be borne in mind too, is, is a community that's suffered enormously and has worked for a long time to receive anything like uh, equality, before the law as well as social acceptance and that sort of thing. What do you have to say to that community in response to the fears that they might have in this discussion? Look, I think it's important to acknowledge the harms and hurts that are there that have been caused and happened. I think that what is most important is for us to listen well to each other because harms and hurts occur to us all and we're aware of awful things that have happened. When I was on the Ruddock panel, I heard some awful things that happened to to people who identify as LGBT. And it was um, heart-wrenching and awful to hear that such a thing, and I felt indignant that it should have happened. At the same time, it's really important to hear the beating heart of people of a religious persuasion and how they feel about what is happening to their compatriots in other countries and how they fear what might happen to them in this country. And I'm using the language of fear and hurt here, which are real fears and real hurts. But we need to listen to each other better so that we can understand each other better. And if we do that, then we can learn to trust one another better. And if we trust one another better, we won't be thinking that your freedom is my loss on either side of that debate. This has been Life and Faith from CPX with me, Simon Smart, and Natasha Moore. Our thanks today to Mike Bird and to Nicholas Aroni for sharing their thoughts on this somewhat explosive subject. 
a couple of where to from here's. Um, Mike Bird's book, Religious Freedom in a Secular Age, is well worth a read. You should get your hands on that. Also, as we said at the start, if you do have a story to share about where you have seen or experienced the kind of pluralism that these guys have been talking about, where you've seen that in practice in the workplace or in public life or maybe even in friendships, why not send us an email about it? We would love to hear more. You can reach us on podcast at publicchristianity.org. Yep, and please do pass this episode on to others you think might appreciate it and leave us a rating or review. It helps get life and faith out to more people. Next week. The purpose of humanity in the Marxist-Leninist view is to serve the interests of the Communist Party and the interests of the state. Now, we in the West have a lot of trouble understanding why we can't just cut a deal with the Chinese Communist Party or Vladimir Putin because surely they want the same things as us.